Well, good morning. Uh, before I begin my first official Sunday sermon as pastor of this church, I want to remind myself and to remind yourselves, perhaps inform yourselves, of the charge that is placed before all pastors. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, to the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, <clears throat> Timothy, to convict his heart of the significance of pastoral leadership. And so, by extension, the same words are to compel all who are called to lead the church. So let me read from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is a, a great responsibility and my prayer is that I would be found faithful in this service to you before God. So brothers and sisters I ask that you pray for me in this task. I ask that you pray for the leaders whom I serve among and I ask that you also pray for this church uh, that we would always seek to be nourished by the word of God. Well, with that as our foundation, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. The title of today's sermon is The Gospel According to Mark. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we start today, working through the gospel according to Mark, uh, we're going to see that this opening verse is packed full of enough things for us to be nourished on this morning. So we get to, we get to spend our time together now thinking about the gospel, the good news. Everyone is searching for good news, but this is the only good news that truly satisfies. J. Gresham Mation, the great Presbyterian theologian of the early 20th century, once wrote, What I need first of all is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me. But if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? Well, in answer to that plea, today we're going to look at number one, the gospel's commencement. Number two, the gospel's composition. And number three, the gospel's challenge. So, 
Number one, the gospel's commencement. The beginning of the gospel. First, we see that the gospel commences, one, in a divine manner. Commences in a divine manner. The word gospel uh, was not a word that Christians invented. Uh, It means good news. Uh, And it was announcement of glad tidings used uh, regarding the Roman Emperor, uh, perhaps for a birthday or a rise to power or a decree, anything to do with the Roman Emperor. And it involved content that is had news, and that content was celebratory. It was good, or at least in the eyes of the Roman Emperor. But Christ and the early church invested this word with greater meaning than the arrival of some earthly king. The gospel became the arrival of God's kingdom and the arrival of God's king. Gospel was now used in a divine manner. And so the gospel, the good news, became a technical or a specific word for the salvation that God has provided through Jesus Christ. And all that entails, the forgiveness of sin, a new righteous status before God, reconciliation to God and eternal life. Uh, In an objective sense, the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his holy life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. In a subjective sense, is how we experience it, is it is the means to obtain the blessings of Christ. We know that is by grace alone, through faith alone. This is outlined for us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That great chapter. So if you turn with me to chapter 15... Let me read. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there it is, belief, faith. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then he goes on and lists uh, more appearances. This is not a gospel of human making or human design or human imagination it comes from god if we flick over to galatians chapter 1 paul makes this absolutely clear galatians 1 and from verse 11 and 12 paul writes for i would have you know brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel has a divine source. And because it is a divine gospel, there is only one. There is only one 
good news. Galatians 1 verses 6 to 7. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So there is only one gospel, a divine gospel. So we, it means we don't get to refine the gospel or adapt the gospel or remove aspects of the gospel or include aspects of the gospel. We don't get to distill the gospel. We do not get to distort the gospel. There is only one gospel, the divine gospel, revealed by scripture alone, received by grace alone, through faith alone, rendered by Christ alone and reason for the glory of God alone. You know, I was absolutely thrilled when the first question I was asked by the ministry search committee at this church was, what is the gospel? Tell us, Mick. might sound like such a simple question, but uh, it reveals the heart of this church uh, that the gospel is foundational. It's imperative that we, we understand the gospel for a number of reasons. Firstly, to understand it for salvation. Romans 1 uh, verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then to the Gentile. So it is imperative we understand the gospel for our own salvation, but then also for the world's salvation, so that we can know what to proclaim to people, that they might be saved as well. Not only for salvation, it's for sanctification. In the uh, Great Commission, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, after uh, Jesus compels the disciples to go and make disciples, he writes, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not just uh, obey some aspects, but to observe all that I've taught, all I've commanded, obey everything. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this startling claim where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's verse 21. Obedience is crucial, and if we are not obeying Christ, then we've misunderstood the gospel. Not only for salvation or sanctification, but also for service. Ephesians 2, from verses 8 to 10, Paul makes this clear. He begins, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There it is. There's the gospel right there. Grace alone through faith alone. But he goes on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we're not serving God, then we have also misunderstood the gospel. So the gospel commences in a divine manner. The secondly, it commences in a distinct manner. 
While there is one gospel, which is the, the technical word, the specific, which is the person and the work of Christ, we recognize that there are actually four gospels, uh, four accounts of uh, the person and the work of Christ, his earthly ministry. Uh, they're written with distinction. They have different authors. Uh, they're written to a different audience. And as a result, they have different aspects. Now, these four Gospels, they supplement each other. They're adding further information. Not each Gospel account has everything uh, that the others do. But while they supplement, they also complement each other. They tell the one story. There's four pieces of the one pie, not four different pies. And so they, they provide the full character of Christ and the full circumstances of Christ's earthly ministry. And within these four accounts, there are no contradictions in any aspects. There is consistency. There is harmony. Harmony in the geography in the history, in the chronology. No aspect is out of place. The testimony of the early generations of the church and the consistent belief throughout the first 17 centuries uh, has been that Matthew, Mark and Luke uh, were three independent affirmations of the gospel. They each wrote separately without any knowledge of the other's work. And... um, they have, uh, they're similar in content, they've got a similar view covering the same kind of things. That's why uh, they're given the name synoptic. So we refer to Matthew, Mark and Luke as the synoptic Gospels. And then John, uh, writing after these other three and, and aware of the other three, provided further supplementary details. And you, you can see that straight away when you compare John with the other three. John adds uh, certain events that took place that are not recorded in the others. Uh, it's John's gospel that we learn uh, the approximate length of Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, we learn more about the nature of Christ, his eternality. I mean, John chapter 1 takes us uh, back into eternity. But again, John's uh, supplements are entirely complementary. So that was the position of the church for the first 17 centuries of this uh, millennia. Uh, But with the rise of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, things began to change. Uh, The Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason as it's sometimes referred to, uh, was according to one of its main proponents, man's emergence from immaturity. It is man learning to think for himself without relying on the authority of the church, the Bible, or the state to tell him what to do. Uh, now, in some of those respects, we, we would acknowledge that, but uh, the direct result of that is that man becomes number one. Human reasoning trumps all other authorities, and the greatest authority is scripture, but man trumps that as well. And as as a result of that, it leads to a low view of the inspiration of Scripture. And it leads to searching for rational explanations for how we ended up with Matthew, Mark, and Luke being so similar. Now these methods uh, are summarized under the, the phrase of high criticism. 
Now, without going into a detailed explanation of the, the various ways of interpreting Scripture that this has led to, most relevant today is, is what that means for our own study on Mark's Gospel. Higher criticisms search for rational explanations for the similarities of the Gospels uh, led to two main theories. Firstly, is the two-gospel theory. That is the uh, understanding that Matthew wrote first, and then Luke uh, obtained a copy of Matthew's gospel, and then he wrote a second gospel. And then uh, Mark obtained a copy of both Matthew and Luke's gospel, and then he he provided a condensed version uh, of the gospel. So that's the two-gospel theory. The second theory is the two-source theory. That is that Mark wrote first. Uh, And then Matthew and Luke came along at a later stage and they'd obtained a copy of Mark. And they'd also obtained a copy of uh, a hypothetical document uh, which has been entitled Q. Uh, Now Q uh, stands for Quelle, which is German for, essentially means source. Uh, And it's a source... Of, that contains sayings of, of Jesus, teachings of Jesus. Now, we say hypothetical because no evidence has been found uh, that this document actually existed. Uh, but so here, Matthew and Luke, at different stages, they had a copy of Mark and this Q document, and then they added in, uh, uh, supplemented that and made their own gospel. But more complicated uh, to this mess is that Uh, There are aspects in Matthew's Gospel that are not mentioned in Luke's Gospel and not found in Mark or this supposed Q source. And so uh, scholars have uh, supposed that Matthew had another source, a third source, and they've creatively termed that M. And of course, Luke also has aspects in his Gospel that are not found in Matthew or Mark or this supposed Q source. And once again, it's supposed he had another source and that Two was creatively named L. The two source theory that Mark and Q were, were first, uh, many evangelicals support this view today. In fact, the majority of my uh, New Testament introductions that are on my shelf or the commentaries on Mark's gospel or the other gospels actually support this as well. However, the legitimacy of this view is questioned when, number one, you understand the circumstances in which this theory arose during the 18th century, and number two, when you understand the prevailing view of the church for the previous 17 centuries, and in particular, the writings of the early church fathers. David uh, Farnell is a professor of New Testament at the Master's Seminary in California. Uh, You may have heard of that. That is the seminary that John MacArthur uh, is president of. So David Farnell uh, has written much about higher criticism uh, of the Bible. He's written much critiquing the higher criticism of the Bible. Uh, One article that he's written entitled The Synoptics in the Early Church, uh, it goes through the writings of the early church's great theologians and pastors and scholars And what he does is he shows that their common testimony is that the Synoptic Gospels were written independently of each other, and that in regards to their order, uh, the early church fathers were pretty much unanimous that Matthew, 
the apostle, wrote first. Luke, the historian, doctor, and companion of the apostle Paul, wrote second. And Mark, the companion of the apostle Peter, wrote down Peter's teachings about Jesus. Deed one uh, early church father uh, labelled Mark's gospel as the memoirs of Peter. Well, what then do we make of the similarities between the synoptic gospels? Well, <clears throat> the first thing is that the three writers we need to understand would have known each other prior to writing their gospels. Uh, in Acts 12 verse 12, we read that the early church met in Mark's mother's house. In Philemon, verse 24, uh, the Apostle Paul's greetings to Philemon, uh, he includes Mark and Luke. And so these gospel writers would have travelled in the same circles. Secondly, the three writers, uh, we need to understand, they're telling the same story of Christ. And so as they go through the history and the chronology, of course there's going to be similarities because they're dealing with the same subject. And thirdly, the thing that was denigrated the most through the Enlightenment is the fact that the three writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The two key texts when we understand the inspiration of Scripture, uh, the first one is 2 Timothy 3.16, where we read that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That means expired by God. It comes from His mouth and if God is a God of truth then his words will be truthful as well 2 Timothy 3 16 the other verse is 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 to 21 apostle Peter writes no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit Now more could be said, I also realise that uh, what I've just shared here uh, might be different from some of the views uh, or understandings that that you might have. Um, But let me just say this from this first sermon and for the entire time that that I'm here, uh, and hopefully that is a long time uh, at MAFRA, that Uh, When we are dealing with these texts, if there's anything that I say on a Sunday morning uh, that differs uh, with what your understanding of Scripture is, then I really encourage you to come and speak with me. And come and speak with me with an open Bible uh, so that we can talk together more, that we can explore these things more. You know, iron sharpens iron. Uh, We want to grow together in our knowledge of the truth. What does this mean then for how we study Mark and uh, indeed the other Gospels as well? Well, it means we take their distinctions seriously, but not suspiciously. We take the distinctions seriously because we want to know what God is specifically teaching in every verse of his word. We don't want to conflate uh, or fuse together all of the the different aspects. We don't want to lose the color and dimension. For instance, uh, in the 
the feeding of the 5,000, that account is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. But all four Gospel writers are including different aspects to that. We want to know, for instance, why Mark has included that and why he has included it in this way as opposed to the other writers. So we take these distinctions seriously. But we also want to make sure that we don't take them suspiciously. We know that God is a God of truth, as I said. And so his word will be truthful and not full of contradictions. Even some evangelicals suggest that Matthew cleaned up some of Mark's loose theology. For example, uh, in Mark chapter 6, we read of Jesus heading to his hometown uh, and there was a statement in verse 5 that Jesus could do no mighty work among them. Uh, later, when Matthew wrote he, uh, the same incident in chapter 13, verse 58, Matthew writes that he did not do mighty works. See the slight difference there. Now, in looking at both these verses as God's word, we don't need to fear contradiction or worry that Mark's writing is going to lead us astray, and that we always need to have the other gospel writers open just to um, clear things up for us. No. Mark, under the apostleship of Peter, and under the authority and inspiration of the spirit of truth, Mark wrote exactly what God wanted to be written, to be read, and to be proclaimed for centuries to come. So, the gospel commences in a distinct way. Number three, the gospel commences in a direct manner. Mark starts at the beginning of the public ministries of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Lord, and then uh, straight into Jesus as a public ministry, who is the Lord to come. Matthew and Luke, uh, you know, they take time to describe the birth uh, narratives of Jesus, and then John he he takes us right back into the eternity of of Jesus. Mark gets us straight in with the uh, hits the ground running. Mark uh, frequently uh, uses the words immediately and the words then, and he keeps his account moving swiftly along. He doesn't his pace is. Uh, he, he starts with pace and continues with pace and ends with pace. Mark has uh, far less of Jesus' teaching material, but there is a great focus on his deeds. And it's indeed with these, these actions of Jesus that actually reveal his character and who uh, he really is. Uh, these features align with the historic testimony of the early church that Mark transcribed Peter's teachings uh, for the Gentile audience in Rome, a people who were practical and action-driven, but also a people who needed direct encouragement and strengthening. We understand that uh, Mark uh, wrote in the late 50s or uh, mid-60s uh, at a time when the persecution of Christians in Rome was about to increase rapidly. Uh, we know of the Emperor Nero operating um, or reigning in about AD 64 and the great persecution that broke out of the church, uh, broke out upon the church at that time. 
Every word in the Bible is true and trustworthy and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. But depending on our circumstances, we uh, may need to hear certain things more often. With the frequent shifting of cultures tied against Christianity, we see that more and more in the news every week. Perhaps Mark's account is just what we need right now. So that is the Gospel's commencement. Well, now we see the Gospel's composition. What is the Gospel? What is the news that is so good? What does it contain? What is it composed of? Well, firstly, it contains the message of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. That little word of in front of Jesus is, I think, designed by Mark to be quite ambiguous. It does it for a reason. Because you see, it could be understood as either the gospel that Jesus preached or the gospel about Jesus. Now, I think Mark designed it to be ambiguous uh, because it's both. He wanted to get a deeper understanding. Jesus delivered the message, and the message is Jesus. Jesus is the source and the subject. He is the composer and the composition. He's the proclaimer and the proclamation. He's the announcer and the announcement. Jesus uh, delivered the message in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus uh, begins his public ministry. What is the first thing he does uh, after he comes from his baptism and the tempting in the wilderness? Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's delivering this message. And it adds to the divine manner, doesn't it? He's the source of the message. He's the source of this good news. But not only is he the one who delivers it, he is the message. Uh, many times the gospel is linked so closely to Jesus' own person. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35, uh, Jesus says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. There's such a tight connection between the gospel and Jesus himself. And of course, uh, other writers in the New Testament bring this uh, to the fore. Apostle Paul, in his letters to the Romans, uh, states this as he opens. Chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Then in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. The New Testament writers understood that Jesus is the message. And indeed, 
we understand that from Mark's uh, gospel account. Because he's recording what Jesus said and recording what Jesus did. The gospel is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And especially his death and his resurrection, which uh, from particularly chapter 8 onwards, so the second half of the, the book, uh, there is a huge focus on the purpose of Christ's mission. So the gospel is composed of the message of Jesus. Next, it's composed of the humanity of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was the name given to the eternal word who became flesh. The fact that the gospel is about Jesus emphasizes his incarnation. For without the incarnation, there could be no salvation for humanity. The writer of the Hebrews, uh, writer to the Hebrews, declares this in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, concerning Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation meaning turning away the wrath of God. Indeed, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. Matthew Chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, uh, explaining what was going to be happening to his fiancée Mary, uh, the angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, John's gospel is known for emphasizing Jesus' deity. The Mark's gospel is known for highlighting Jesus' humanity. But as I made clear earlier, all the evangelists are sharing complementary aspects of the same gospel. Not four different Jesuses, but rather four different witnesses to Jesus. And so the deity and the humanity of Christ are not aspects of greater or lesser importance. They are both crucial. Our salvation stands or falls on both. So the gospel is composed of the humanity of Jesus. Next, it's composed of the royalty of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek for the Hebrew Messiah and it means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, kings, high priests and some prophets were anointed to set them apart for service to God, they're anointed by oil. And so the anointed one came to be associated with the kingship of David, the great king of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that from his line would come a king whose throne would be established forever. By the time Jesus' ministry began, Jewish expectation was that the Christ would come and deliver the Jewish nation from the Romans. That was certainly the disciples' understanding. When Jesus began to explain what his ministry would be through his death and resurrection, Mark chapter 8, Peter turned around and rebuked him and said, no, you can't die 
That's not how this is supposed to work. Jesus was the awaited Christ King, but he came to save his people from their sins. And by extension of that, to save Jews and Gentiles, all who would come to trust in him to save them from their sins. And it would not be through conquering public victory. No, it would be through a humble, pitiful death on the cross. Yet this would lead to victory. The cross was his path to coronation. As the saviour sacrifice, so uh, must we. Mark chapter 8 verse 35. Let me read that verse again. This time understanding uh, more of what it means for us. When Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We need to put ourselves aside and trust in Christ. Standing for Christ, submitting to Christ, may mean suffering for us as it did for the Saviour. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, the Apostle says, Apostle Paul says, Indeed all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But we understand that we have a saviour who laid down his life for us. A royal king who came to save his people from their sins. So the gospel is composed of the royalty of Jesus. And next, it's composed of the deity of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And while Mark may emphasise the humanity of Jesus, we just said that, He leaves us in no doubt uh, concerning the deity of Jesus either. Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And throughout Mark's Gospel, only God and the demons recognise Jesus' full deity. Although as readers, we see Christ's deity in his incredible uh, power and works. The people at the time did not. The climax of the gospel comes when the Roman centurion in charge of Jesus' crucifixion makes this stunning declaration. In chapter 15, verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him, is at the foot of the cross, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Christ's death and resurrection reveal who he truly is. So what makes the gospel then? The humanity, the royalty and the deity of Christ. It is the good news of the eternal Son of God who became incarnate and died and rose again for the sins of his people. His people being all those who trust in him. Do you wish to receive the benefits of Christ's work and find yourselves numbered as one of his people? Well, then repent and believe in this Jesus. This 
is the gospel's composition. And this leads to the third and final point, the gospel's challenge. When Mark opens his gospel with the words, the beginning, now, some scholars think that it refers to the opening few verses, uh, or at most, at the opening section, verses 1 to 13. But another view is that it refers to the whole gospel, the whole book. If we look to the end of Mark's gospel, we see that its original ending in chapter 16, verse 8, it ends on this uh, note of alarm. After the women uh, see the angel in the tomb of Jesus, uh, we read, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so the gospel ends as abruptly as it begins. The question Mark leaves his readers with is, how will people respond to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Mark has recorded its historical beginnings, but that's not the end of the story. The question is, what will people do with this good news? In a way, it reflects the experience of Mark himself. He was part of the missionary trip with uh, Paul and Barnabas that we read about in Acts chapter 13. But what happened? He deserted them along the way. He turned back. Now, by the grace of God alone, he was restored to ministry. And he eventually became a significant help to both Peter and to Paul. And then God used him to write down Peter's accounts to form the gospel that we're beginning to look at today. Of course, Peter himself a new experience of faltering. Uh, before the Lord, uh, he, he denied the Lord three times, and uh, but then after the resurrection, Jesus graciously restored him that he would become a great apostle. The challenge placed before us by Mark through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is How will you respond to this good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? If Jesus truly is who he says he is, then you must respond in repentance of sin and faith in him. And by faith, I don't mean just a head knowledge and acknowledgement that Jesus is who he says he is. But faith is more robust than that. Faith is in commitment and submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. So let this day be a new beginning. Hear this news, because it is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your written word, and you have revealed yourself mightily, And finally, through your Son, Jesus Christ. As we begin this study on Mark's Gospel, uh, may we uh, grow in our knowledge of your Son. May we understand truly what this good news is, that we may understand it for our salvation 
our sanctification and for service to you. May you be working through each one of us here and collectively as a church that we might proclaim this good news, the only good news that this world can know, that they too might come uh, to respond in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this good news. We thank you that you are a good God. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.